0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Your
1: email functions like a slot machine. You know, most of the time, um, you know, you pull the lever sort of to check your email and you know, you kind of lose, right? You get something that's kind of disappointing. Um, You know, maybe it's an email from a frustrated client or, you know, it's a message from your boss asking you to do something you don't really feel like doing. But then every once in a while you get, as I did the other day, an email actually from a long lost childhood friend or, you know, you get an invitation to speak at a conference that, um, you know, is very flattering. And so it's kind of this idea of these random rewards that are kind of mixed in with all that annoying stuff and mixed in with all the junk that, Activates this kind of seeking mechanism in our brain and makes us want to kind of, you know, go back and check and check and check again and again to see if there are any of those kind of random rewards in there. But it is, it's very much the fact that they're not just sort of, you never know what to expect. That's kind of the driving force behind part of that addiction.
2: Thanks for having me. Yeah, it is really cool to have you here. You know, um, as you and I were just saying before we hit record here, uh, you were one of our very last interviews that we did before you rebranded the show as uh, Unmistakable Creative. And, you know, at the time you were working with 99U, and I'd always been a big fan of all the stuff that you had done at 99U. Um, and you know, now I know you have a new book out called unsubscribe, which I've had the good fortune to read and thought, yeah, our audience needs to hear about this book and and the message of it. But before we get there, um, I want to ask you another question, uh, which has been a really kind of fun one to start with when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? And how did that end up impacting the choices that you made with your life and your career?
1: You know, it's funny. (laughs) I've thought about this before and you know, some people, of course, have answers like, oh, you know, since I was 11, I wanted to be whatever, an astronaut or something. Mm-hmm. The only actual evidence I've ever found, you know, like something that I wrote down when I was a really small child was that I wanted to be a soccer player, <laughs> 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 which obviously has nothing to do with uh, what, I do, what I do now. Um, but I think probably... A little bit later on, one of the things that um, my kind of compulsions when I was younger, um, you know, always, always reading, but also um, kind of publishing and curating and sharing. So I was in high school in the 90s. And um, I started a zine when I was, I think, 15 or 16. Uh um, That I had, like, you know, a masthead that I made for it. And I had this, like, dorky t shirt with the masthead on it. And I used to pass it out at high school. So that was kind of, I think, like, you know, the earliest seed of, um, you know, really just sort of an obsession with. Ideas and writing and publishing that you know has ended up kind of playing out throughout my entire career. Mm.
2: Yeah, um, I'm curious. One, what was the zine about? Uh, And also, you know, that's a really different time in which to be sort of you know, exploring this entire through line of publishing. Because I remember when I asked you what is the through line last time of your career, I think that ended up being the entire theme of the interview was the idea that it was publishing. Mm -hmm. I'm really curious, kind of, you know, one, how it's changed, how it's evolved since then. Um, and then, you know, I mean, if there are kids listening to this in high school or parents who are, you know, having their kids listen to this, what would you say to them?
1: Um, well, I mean, I think, you know, in terms of kids, it's just sort of go, I mean, two things, I guess one, you know, definitely pursue kind of your natural impulses, but I would say not, not in too much of a sort of, um, freighted way. You Mm. know, I definitely don't agree with the kind of, Um, you know, whole sort of follow your passion argument. I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting about where I've ended up today, which is, um, you know, I think more or less sort of, um, you know, being a a writer and um, thinker largely about, you know, kind of productivity and creative careers. Mm -hmm. And certainly, you know, if you had asked me when I was publishing my zine when I was 16, if that's what what I would have been doing when I'm 39, you know, I would have Been like, what? That that sounds strange, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, Probably, I'm sure at 16. um, Thankfully, I was probably not thinking about the concept of productivity very much. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, sort of, you meet certain people and you kind of fall into certain things. And I really do kind of believe in that argument that um, meaning emerges from mastery rather than the other way around. You know, that you can you kind of become passionate about something through the process of um you know kind of pursuing it and learning about it more deeply at Uh least that's certainly been true for me um so I think you know when you're thinking about young people or even you know people in their 20s or people who are making kind of midlife career transitions I think this notion um you know that you should kind of find your calling or know what your calling is which I think kind of causes a lot of people a lot of anxiety Mm -hmm. um Is a little bit false. I think it's more about kind of trying out different things and feeling what resonates with you and also just sticking, you know, kind of sticking with things and allowing, um, you know, sort of meaning to unfold as you pursue things more deeply.
2: Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because, um, you know, I, I look at kind of what I do now and I realize that, you know, it was almost an entirely accidental discovery. Like it wasn't part of any sort of grand plan. Uh, and, you know, I, I think I've heard enough arguments for the sort of, you know, don't follow your passion, follow what, you know, you're engaged by. You know, we've had Kelly mm-hmm. Report here. We'd have Tina Seelig, who's had mm-hmm. a similar message. And, you know, I, I guess for me, um, the, the question is how do you – how do you maintain sort of this balance of looking at multiple interests, exploring them, you know, without sort of being rigid about a calling and yet at the same time commit to it for long enough for it to have some potential for mastery?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. And the way that you were kind of just phrasing that, it got me thinking, you know, why, why have we shifted kind of from this kind of follow your passion argument to this sort of more like, you know, meaning unfolds from mastery argument, but also being very adaptable, right? And I think so much of that is about, um, you know, the way that the world has changed and the way that the pace at which technology is changing the world now, right? Like, so that, you know, you can't, you can't sort of, um, in a way, you know, pursuing this one big passion and sticking only with that, it it would almost leave you sort of (laughs) ill-equipped to thrive Mm -hmm. in this world, right? Where you constantly have to kind of be adapting and, adding new skills. And I think, so I think the kind of ideal now is more of that kind of, you know, I think what, what IDEO uses is that kind of idea of the T-shaped model, right? With that sort of like deep well of expertise Mm -hmm. and then kind of, you know, a broad kind of shallower different like application of skills and um, knowledge that surround that expertise and support it, you know? So I feel like you kind of constantly have to be, learning how to, um, think about your, your sort of, um, area of expertise and constantly kind of reframe it and reposition it as, you know, kind of the situation changes, what the market wants changes and technology changes, which is quite challenging to be mm-hmm. honest.
2: Yeah. You, you know, I think the, the thing that I, I realize you know, looking back at it all is I think when, you know, you're 16 or I'm 19 and in college, you don't really have enough data points to make, I think such a, a profound decision about what adds meaning to your life and what your calling is. Um, I think part of it is finding the data points that allow you to discover that greater meaning.
1: Yeah. And I think just feeling like not too, not being too precious about it. Mm -hmm. You know, I think just trying a lot of different things for me. I mean, my kind of, um, you know, most common advice to anyone who who's thinking about any type of career change or just starting out is, you know, to do internships, just such a low barrier to, um, you know, entry type of job where you can just start to experience what it's like to work in different industries or to, you know, volunteer for, you know, different types of work, even for a few hours a week, just to start to, you know, touch in different industries and experience different working environments so that you can, you know, just start to get a little bit of Feedback. You know, I think that kind of feedback piece is pretty crucial to honing in on on what you really want to do. And if you don't, if you're not, if you're just kind of waiting for that one thing, you're not really doing things that are kind of going to help you um, get that feedback you need, like, oh, I do like this or this is resonate with me. But actually, like, I really don't want to work in that type of environment. You know, I think you need to kind of constantly be kind of trying different things to hone in.
2: Mm. So, walk me through um, sort of the journey from high school and the zine to ninety nine U to leaving ninety nine U to doing what you're doing now. Like, what are some of the sort of bigger lessons learned along the way? You know, what were the the major inflection points in your career? And you know, I mean, do you like looking back? What do you what do you what comes up as major themes for you?
1: Yeah, well, I think um, still you know, kind of consistent from our last uh, conversation, you know, publishing is is really the through line for me. So. Um, You know, I did the zine in high school. Um, You know, I was always very focused on sort of, you know, literature and and writing in college. I did a number of internships. I worked at um, a publishing office at MIT. I went to school at Boston University, but I worked at MIT. I worked at a publishing office there. I interned at the MIT Press. Um, And then after I graduated, I ended up... um, kind of through a contact working, um, at a small web design firm where I was like kind of a gene of all trades, you know, doing a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. Um, and that actually was kind of, it was outside Boston and it was in this mill that, um, like monster.com was out of and kind of all of these sort of like early.com companies. Um, and (laughs) so it was also kind of a centerpiece when the dot bomb happened, you started to see just all of these, like, weird companies. One that I remember is Dash.com that kind of bubbled up too quickly and then kind of died off. Um, And I ended up getting laid off as part of the the dot bomb from that web design firm. And I relocated to New York and then I um, ended up working at Flavor Pill, um, which um, still exists and also has a blog called Flavor Wire, which um, if you're not familiar with it, it's kind of basically a, a sort of home for cultural coverage, arts and literature and music and so forth. Um, and um, I was actually their first employee. People were It was essentially a startup, although people didn't really use that language so much back then. Um, and managing a number of sort of cultural email newsletters. So it was sort of like the, you know, a, a sort of daily candy type of, of publication, mm-hmm. um, but a guide to cultural events. And I was there for about five or six years. Um, and, you know, the company kind of grew and grew and grew. And then I kind of got to a point where I wanted to move on and I ended up actually taking a job out West in LA working at a, um, at a music company, which is now defunct uh, website. And, um, that was a big lesson for me because when I went out there, I was, I had, I had been at flavor pill and kind of, you know, really like been sort of the editor building up this company and then had felt like, you know, it's time to kind of move on and expand my skills. And the CEO of this company, this music company recruited me and, offered me more money than I had ever made. And I kind of, you know, moved out to, uh, you know, to work in LA with like all these kind of hopes and then got there and found out that kind of the entire team um, that was there was not really on board with the CEO's vision that he had kind of shared with me that he wanted me to pursue. Um, And so um, I ended up only staying there about 10 months. It was not a good situation at all. And then later ended up um, because of a personal relationship moving back to New York Um, and then, um, I was, you know, kind of doing some different consulting and stuff, stuff like that, figuring out what was next. And then I actually ended up, um, interviewing Scott Belsky, who's the uh, founder of Behance, um, and which was, you know, the parent company of 99U. And, uh, I was helping him with the, the book that he was writing, his first book, Making Ideas Happen. And, um, you know, we, we really enjoyed working together and then, um, you know, basically kind of 99U, um, blossomed out of that. And then, you know, I was there for about, uh, seven years, I think. So, I mean, I think in terms of, um, how it all kind of gels together and lessons learned, at least for me, I kind of found that, um, you know, that, that I was super interested in, um, kind of this intersection of, you know, I think technology and design and publishing, and writing, you know, right. So just kind of, you know, online, online media, but really like building properties, building brands, you know, and thinking about the sort of creative and design aspect of it Mm -hmm. as well. Um, And I learned that for me, just working in a startup environment was um, the only thing that really worked when I took that job in LA and I went out there, um, it was much more corporate structure. Um, You know, people were not particularly engaged with their jobs and, I just could, you know, I, it wasn't working for me at all. And, you know, so that was a great moment to realize that for me, like being really connected to the mission of what I was doing, whatever company I was working for, having a lot of autonomy and having those things, um, you know, weighed against the idea of making more money that, you know, that that kind of those things, the creativity and the autonomy were much more important to me, which is a really valuable lesson to learn.
2: So, you know, one of the things that I know uh, about the work that you did at 99U is, I mean, you grew it to, uh, you know, being this really just incredible award-winning yeah. property. And, uh, you know, I'm I curious, you know, when you look at the web today versus what it was when you started there, uh, you, I mean, what are your thoughts and, and what, you know, what do you say to content creators, especially individual content creators, about what is involved in producing something of high quality based on that experience?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, even at the time when you know we started, ninety nine U as an online property, which would have been um, two thousand and nine. The idea then was um, really quality over quantity in terms of the content. We started out only publishing um, two, two articles a week, and um, you know the idea was we would. Published a very limited amount of high-quality articles. We would invest kind of heavily in social media, so we would be a much more regular presence on social media. Um, and we would focus on not just welling up like kind of new of-the-minute content, but also kind of archival and kind of classic content, right? So this kind of idea of creating a sort of um, site with, you know, evergreen editorial was kind of the concept behind it then um, and then obviously sort of using some design elements on the front end to you know still make it look vibrant not as if we were kind of um, not necessarily putting things out at a at a decent clip um, but so i think you know i think what was so valuable about 99u was um or i should say what resonated with people was that focus on quality and also just the fact that it had such a strong mission that we were so you know it was always sort of pretty laser-like focused on this idea of focusing on idea execution rather than idea generation. So very much kind of um, demystifying the creative process and kind of um, getting away from this kind of constant focus on, you know, inspiration and kind of getting a little bit more into the weeds and kind of talking about, um, you know, the hard stuff, when people fail, when things go wrong. And, and you know that has the effect, I think, of making things seem um, more more attainable. Um, I'm sorry, I have a little dog no who is excited in the background. Um, but what's been interesting to see for me in terms of the evolution of the web and kind of why I have um, more recently, so right past 18 months, I moved on from 99U. I've been writing more for myself on my website, and then of course, writing books as well, is that now it feels to me like, you know, the web is just, it's getting so crowded. There's so many voices. And I think for me that, you know, kind of publishing, editorial through line is still happening in books and even books that I'm authoring, you know, entirely myself, um, in the way that I feel like we, you know, books are almost becoming this sort of um, refuge or, um, safe space where you can, you know, kind of fully process and digest an idea in a way that you just can't really do on the web anymore because it's so, it's just so noisy, you know? Mm -hmm. So even though when I'm writing a book that it's about like a single concept, to me, it still feels like a very strongly, almost like curatorial, editorial process as well, because I think you kind of, um, you know, we get so much bite-sized content on the web, but it's really hard to understand the through line and how it all fits together in a way. Um, or it takes a lot, a lot of effort that I don't think people have the time or energy to, um, you know, to really commit to. So I think that, you know, books are still playing, um, you know, they've always played that role, but I think they're playing that role even more strongly now.
2: So, a couple of questions about 99U. Um, what did you learn about life, success, business, uh, and just, you know, kind of navigating a, a career from working with somebody like Scott Belsky? Because I know he's done some pretty amazing things.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think I think one of the things, I mean, there's a couple of things that I learned from Scott. I would say one, um, you know, one thing that I already mentioned that sort of extremely strong, um, focus on mission, um, and, and kind of always being, um, very clear, almost kind of a laser like focus on where you're going and what it means in the big scheme. Um, one of the other things that I think Scott was really, um, amazing at that I've always admired is being able to be, um, kind of incredibly present in the moment. Um, you know, as 99 new as Behance grew, obviously, you know, there are always a million things happening, but he always had this kind of amazing skill to um, just kind of pause at any moment and kind of be right there with you, you know, even mm-hmm. if he was kind of in the middle of doing something else, which I think is really, really valuable skill and one that's kind of becoming only more valuable these days. Um, and what else? I mean, you know, I think from not just Scott, but the whole Behance team, I mean, that was just such it was such an amazing group of uh, you know fiercely um, kind of um, productive and achievement oriented people and you know working in that environment you really kind of I think learn how to um, to raise your game um, but on the 99u front in terms of just thinking about the speakers and, and what I learned there I think one of the biggest um, one of the biggest things that I took away and wh- one of the things that was actually the most inspirational was just the idea that Um, nobody really knows what the hell they're doing. (laughs) I mean, you know, people from Sebastian Thrun, um, you know, who was behind the first, uh, you know, led the team that built the first self-driving car, they built Google Glass. Um, The guy who was one of the co-founders of the Heinlein Park in New York City. Um, You know, all of these people were always talking about how it was really just a process of kind of putting one foot in front of the other and, you know, of just taking kind of constantly taking that next step and really proceeding, you know, without a map. And that was, um, extremely encouraging to see that I think as versus, you know, these kind of, um, very pat, um very heroic stories. We often hear from people about how things unfolded. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that's really a breath of fresh air to see people who have accomplished incredible things and have them talk about how, you know they they just didn't really know what they were doing as it unfolded, and they were just very um, you know, incredibly persistent and focused.
4: How old up?
2: Well, let's do this. Let's shift gears and let's talk about why you're really here, which is to talk about unsubscribe and kind of, you know, this notion that email is killing our productivity. So let's start with this. What sort of prompted uh, you to write this book? Like what planted the seed for this idea?
1: Well, I think I've been um, for a long time, I've been really just kind of, you know, I think obsessed with the idea of I mean, obviously obsessed with the ideas of kind of thinking about productivity, thinking about creativity and, you know, looking at the way that, um, the evolution of technology and how kind of, you know, attached we are to our smartphones, how attached we are to social media, how attached we are to email and how that is changing the way that we work and how it's impacting the creative process in particular, in what I think is a a largely negative way. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, when you think about, you know, how many distractions you face in a given day, um, if you kind of, you know, look at that from a sort of, uh, you know, kind of data analysis perspective, email remains, you know, by far the biggest distraction for, um, you know, any type of person in the workplace. And so I just became really interesting, excuse me, interested in looking at you know, why email in particular is so addictive, um, and kind of what we can do to, you know, to kind of break out of that cycle. I think that we've, you know, I mean, we've had email for 25 years now and, you know, we seem to sort of only be getting worse at it, not better. So I was kind of interested in investigating, um, you know, why we why we struggle with it so much and seeing if we could find some ways to deal with it in a better way.
2: Right. So let's talk about why why is it so addictive? Like I, I remember that to me really kind of was a really revealing part. I think understanding that and then let's talk about some of the ways to manage it.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, in the in the top part of the book, I talk about a bunch of different psychological concepts, um, you know, that sort of drive the addiction behind email. And um, you know, I think maybe we could touch on two of them right now. And the first is Uh, you know, this idea of random rewards. So, you know, the notion that essentially your email functions like a slot machine, you know, most of the time, um, you know, you pull the lever sort of to check your email and, you know, you kind of lose, right? You get something that's kind of disappointing. You know, maybe it's an email from a frustrated client or, you know, it's a your boss asking you to do something you don't really feel like doing. But then every once in a while you get, as I did the other day, an email actually from a long lost childhood friend or, you know, you get an invitation to speak at a conference that, um, you know, is very flattering. And so it's kind of this idea of these random rewards that are kind of mixed in with all that annoying stuff and mixed in with all the junk that activates this kind of seeking mechanism in our brain and makes us want to kind of, you know, go back and check and check and check again and again. To see if there are any of those kind of random rewards in there, but it is—it's very much the fact that they're not just sort of—you never know what to expect—that's kind of the driving force behind part of that addiction. Mm. So that's the first one, and then I think the second thing um, that's really interesting is this idea of completion bias. So, um, basically, science kind of you know studied the brain and learned that we have. Um, We basically love to complete things. When we complete a task, get this kind of little hit of dopamine, right? It makes us want to sort of repeat that behavior to experience um, that pleasurable sensation again and again. And what that means is because we like completion so much, the sort of upshot of that is, is that we're sort of predisposed to focus on quick, easy to finish tasks because we get that completion very quickly um, and so, when you think about that idea, and you kind of um, translate it on top of email, number one, it kind of explains this—you know—constant compulsion to get to inbox zero, right? Because that's sort of the ultimate completion when you think about—you know—processing your email. But even if you think about it kind of along the way, right? Every time you kind of tick off another unread message um, from that count. You almost get like this, right, this little mini hit of completion. And so email is, you know, very much tapping into, you know, our kind of predisposition for these kind of quick, easy to finish tasks. So it gives us this really strong feeling of productivity, even if, you know, in the grand scheme of things, maybe those small tasks that we're doing are not particularly Productive. And so, you know, I think those two things together are really kind of driving this, you know, cycle of addiction.
2: Okay. So the, the question I think that's going to come up is how do you break the addiction? Let's we'll start. With.
1: <laughs> that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think that the sort of number, there's lots of tips I can offer, but I think the, um, biggest thing, both from scientific evidence and just anecdotal evidence, you know, over the years at at 99U and elsewhere, just interviewing um, hundreds of designers and entrepreneurs and creatives is to really make sure that you're time boxing your email routine, right? So it's this idea of batch processing. Essentially, there's sort of two ways that people deal with their email, right? They're kind of batchers or they're reactors. And most people fall into the second category. They're really dealing with their email in a reactive way. So they're kind of, you know, constantly dipping into and out of their email throughout the day, constantly multitasking with email. Um, It's very notification driven, right? And they're kind of constantly nibbling on it throughout the day. Whereas batchers are kind of setting aside, you know, specific time blocks, say two to three times a day to focus 100% on their email and then, you know, when they're not in kind of one of those email focus blocks, then they're completely ignoring it. And research has shown that batchers are significantly more productive, they're less stressed, and they're happier. Um, I think there's some studies that have shown that, you know, um, people who batch process are typically processing their email about 20% faster on the whole. So, like processing the same amount of email 20% faster than people who are working um, reactively. And there are also other studies that show that um, the more frequently you check your email, the more stressed you feel. So, I think the kind of biggest, you know, biggest shift we need to make is to, um, you know, not be constantly reactively checking our email, but really trying to limit that to a few. Um, specific times during the day.
2: Yeah, I think it's really interesting that you said that, uh, you know, we we tend to be much like less happier when we check email constantly. Like I've noticed, I think it was pretty much after I read your book, I I made two deliberate sort of choices. I was like, okay, after 5 or 6 p.m., no more email. Uh, I'm going to try to stay off the computer, even if it means playing video games on the Xbox. That's better than being in front of the computer. Um, Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the batch processing one, which, you know, I think I've I've abided by ever since I started writing. But I've... I think the biggest thing I noticed is that my overall anxiety level is down significantly. And I'm kind of like, wow, I am. And I, and I also have noticed that, you know, I've checked email once a day and world war three hasn't started. So.
1: Precisely. Right. And I think that's the thing is that we don't, you know, we kind of get stuck in this cycle of, of urgency with email. And we don't kind of factor in how much the way that we're conducting ourselves creates expectations for other people you know, we realize that if we respond in five minutes, people start to expect to respond us to respond <laughs> right. within five minutes, you know. But if you respond within three hours or you respond within two days, yeah. they will also start to, you know, adjust expectations. Um, so I think it is good to kind of experiment um, and, you know, see. In fact, as you said, you know, like World War 3 doesn't happen. Usually everything is fine. In fact, like, you know, everything is not as urgent as it seems. Um, you know, the sort of idea that time... Um, or excuse me, the distance creates perspective, whether that's distance in time or kind of physical distance, you know, sometimes, right. If you don't respond to an email immediately, someone who emailed you a question will just solve the question themselves, you know, and if you had checked your, waited three or four hours to check your email, you would realize that actually wasn't a concern at all. They just figured it out, you know, (laughs) because we're kind of all in this reactive cycle. I think it kind of keeps feeding that urgency, but it's a false urgency in many ways. Yeah.
4: Well,
2: let's actually talk about the processing aspect of email, because I, you know, I found some of the things you said invaluable. I was kind of like, wow, in addition to not checking my email, I have an autoresponder that says, you know, I'm not able to respond to every email because I get a lot of emails that I'm kind of like responding to this doesn't change the outcome of, of anybody's life. It's kind of like there's no actual ask in this email. It's just a really lengthy email with no sort of call to action at the end. And so I finally was like, okay, you know what? I don't want to be a jerk. So I'm just going to put this autoresponder that says I'm working on a book. So I'm not able to respond to every email that I receive.
1: Yeah, I think, and I think that's the thing, right? You just have to kind of get strategic about it. I think in many ways we're sort of, um, feel very put upon about how much email we have and we feel very overloaded, overloaded, but we rarely take time to kind of strategize to, you know, about how we could kind of be dealing with things better. Um, and I think there's, you know, there's a few different things. Like you were saying, you know, autoresponders are one. If you're not comfortable with an autoresponder, I think, um, you know, certainly looking at those emails and deciding, um, you know, which ones you think might be able to tolerate a templated reply and creating, you know, a few potentially, you know, in Gmail kind of canned responses so that you can, you know, you can pull them up and maybe even adapt them slightly to the person that you're responding to, but you're not kind of, you know, wasting time rewriting the same emails again, and again, and again, um, you know, can you, um, are you getting a lot of questions where you could just point people to an FAQ that was on your website? Um, you know, do you have problems, um, you know, even looking at, at how you, um, one of the things I recommend to people is kind of not letting defaults dictate your workflow, right? You kind of have to customize your, your email uh, client itself, you know, so if every time you pop into Gmail to respond to messages, you know, you already have, Um, you know, but then you kind of get distracted by new messages that are coming in. Um, you know, there's extensions, browser extensions you can download. uh, There's one called inbox pause, you know, that allows you to kind of hit that pause button. There's actually another one called batched inbox where you can set your Gmail to check your email only at specific times so that you can only get that incoming mail, um, you know, when you want to deal with it. Um, doing things like if you're using Outlook, separating your email from your calendar, you know, if potentially you're relying on, you're keeping your email open because you need to get meeting notifications, but then you're constantly being distracted by um, email notifications, you know, so I think kind of small, you know, small tweaks can have an outsized impact on your productivity. And so we kind of constantly have to be, um, or not even constantly, but, you know, periodically doing kind of an audit of, um, you know, what's going on in your email and what's just, what's just noise and thinking about how you can strategically adapt to that. I like to kind of um, take the idea of, of Pareto's principle or the 80-20 rule and think about that, um, you know, as applies to email. So, you know, the basic concept, right, of the 80-20 rule is that 20% of your work produces 80% of the impacts, I think it's interesting to apply that same concept to email. What if only 20% of, the impel, excuse me, 20% of the email that you received produced 80% of the impact, you know, with relation to sort of the work that was really meaningful to you? How do you deal with that other, you know, 80% that's in your inbox that's really probably mostly noise?
2: So I'll share something that I thought was funny. It's kind of obnoxious, but also at the same time, you're kind of like, man, that makes sense. So Dan Kennedy had this really funny thing that he said that he basically separates his email into two categories. Is this a person that's trying to give me money or is this a person that's trying to get me to do something? (laughs) And I was like, okay, I mean, that's, you know, it's somewhat obnoxious, but there's a, there's a grain of truth to that. It's kind of like, okay, is this something that's leading to a real tangible result? Or is this just some, you know, pointless exercise?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And I think you have to think about what those, what those buckets are for you. And I think, you know, when we're dealing with email, and as you were saying, it kind of produces a lot of ambient anxiety, kind of creating a couple a couple different buckets of, you know, how you might um, categorize different emails um, and then, you know, creating folders that just allow you to kind of sort things out of your inbox into those folders. Even just that act of kind of sorting and mm-hmm. feeling like you're categorizing things, I think can relieve a lot of anxiety and also just obviously help you, you know, maybe create a more prioritized structure for yourself. Um, you know, so you're starting to think about, yeah, is this something that, uh, you know, relates to financial income? Or is this something that relates to my meaningful goals? Or is this someone, you know, asking me to do something that's maybe like, you know, a kind of nice to have for them, but something that needs to also really align with my goals or maybe I'm not going to kind of opt into
0: it. Right.
2: Um, can you talk a little bit about the the sort of filters that you use? Like, I remember you broke it up into sort of VIPs, collaborators and, and one other group. And I was kind of like, okay, do you just use Gmail filters to do that? I did that. And I was like, oh, okay, this is cool. So this kind of tells me like my VIP list is basically my agent, my editor at Penguin, my business partner, and that's about it.
1: Yeah. I mean, so the entire... <laughs> The kind of concept of of thinking about who are the people that matter and just you know accepting this idea that you know all emails are not created equal. I think that's one of the things that's so problematic about the way that our inboxes look visually, right? Is that it looks like a level a level playing field. Everything is equal. And so I think whether you actually create filters, you know, where you link different email addresses to different categories, or you just have sort of a, a mental hierarchy that you know you're aware of in your brain thinking about um you know a couple different categories of people so you know kind of the top level being vip's right and so those are the people who are kind of crucial to you know sort of your your love and your livelihood you know so maybe key you know family members your significant other or you know the boss or the big deal client you know those people who um you really want to make sure you stay on top of their emails and um, you know, respond to them urgently. And then the second group under that is kind of key collaborators. Um, you know, really the people who you are working with to move key projects forward. Um, you know, but maybe, you know, do not hold as much kind of sway over your career as say your boss. Um, and then under that, you just have, I think, um, you have kind of the, um, fun people basically, right. And these are people that you correspond with because you enjoy it. Um, you know, because they sort of, you know, add insight or laughter to your day, but it's not really essential that you get back to these people right away. Um, And then beneath that, you kind of have this whole um, group of, you know, basically randoms, right, which is like anyone who just decides that they should be in your inbox, you know, often people who you've never even met before, but sometimes people who you never met before who are presenting good opportunities. And so I think you kind of have to create your own hierarchy of those people, VIPs, key collaborators, fun people, and randoms. And then think about what kind of, you know, kind of privilege and kind of maybe, um, priority timeframe that you want to respond to their messages in. Mm -hmm. Um, and as you said, you know, you can link it to actual, like start to filter things like that if you want to go that deep. Um, but I think it's useful even just as a mental concept to think about it, to start to say to yourself, you know, okay, Um, you know, I can only respond to so much. And there are certain people whose emails I will regard as urgent, there are certain people, you know, certain people's emails that I will respond to within one to two days. And then there are certain people whose emails I'll respond to if and when I have time, you know, or the interest and think about it, you know, so kind of starting to get away from this, um, you know, inbox zero obsession, and this obsession that, you know, everyone um, always deserves sort of equal, um, speed and caliber of response. I don't think that's realistic anymore.
2: Mm. Wow. Um, so I want to wrap by asking you a few different things. One, what does your average sort of day look like from a habit standpoint? Like what are your own creative habits or routines or rituals?
1: Um, well, so I tend to, um, get up. I have a little dog. As you heard earlier, we go for a walk outside. I just really like to kind of get out in the open air and feel the day. Um, And then I, um, you know, after breakfast, I sit down, I usually try to write for about three, three and a half hours in the morning, Um, typically breaking that up into maybe an initial 90 to 120 minute block, and then taking like a half an hour break, and then kind of going back to work for another, you know, 90 minutes to an hour. And um, as I'm sure you know, from your own research, that's kind of aligned with that kind of Um, you know notion of how peak performers work this idea that you can only really exert you know kind of peak focus or sustain peak focus for about 90 to 120 minutes Mm -hmm. um and then after i do about that three hours or so i have lunch and then i kind of come back and i focus on um you know, what I call, so I think of kind of the writing for me in the morning as kind of my, you know, deep attention or deep focus work. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I think about the afternoon as sort of more, um, what I like to think of as kind of hyper attention work. So work that I need to do, but the type of work that, um, is one, a little bit less mentally demanding. Um, So, you know, it's your energy kind of dips from your natural circadian rhythms in the afternoon. You're not, you're doing less demanding work, but also, you know, this concept of hypertension, thinking about work that is more interruptible, you know, that I could hop on, um, you know, a call like this, or I could dip into a meeting and come back to without experiencing, um, you know, kind of much of a loss in performance um you know so for me it could be whatever you know doing putting together my email newsletter or um you know working on redesigns of my website or you know the tasks that are a little bit easier to kind of dip into and um dip out of so that's kind of for me like sort of the general structure of the day is trying to have that deep focus in the morning and then you know doing a little bit of the more um kind of hyper attention work in the afternoon
2: wow. Okay. So two last questions. Um, one, what is one book other than your own that you would recommend to our audience that you think has made a profound impact on your life?
1: Um, you know, the book that I was just thinking about yesterday and a book that I think about all the time is, um, the gift by Lewis Hyde. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, in which he, uh, the gift being basically creativity. Um, and he, um, you know, talks a lot about, um I think the idea that uh creative labor kind of has its own rhythm um and is something that cannot actually be um sort of improved or changed by any uh type of you know time saving device or app, um, which is I think a very useful and true concept and one that I think about a lot. Um and he also talks a lot about the kind of dangers of um not using your gift you know what happens if you are a creative person and you're not kind of putting those things out into the world um, and how that can become um, quite toxic in fact Um, and so yeah I think there's a lot of there's a lot of it's a very sort of deeply meditative and um, thoughtful book that's kind of really changed the way that I think about creativity and the way that I work in many senses.
2: Well, I have it on my shelf. I'll have to do a dive back into it. Now that you've mentioned that I was struggling with it, but you've kind of given me an incentive to to pick it back up. Yeah. Um, so one last question, um, which is how we finish all our interviews. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: For me, I think the most important thing is curiosity. Um, to me, you know, we talked uh, earlier about 99U and that focus on idea execution and, um, you know, persistence and and really grit. And to me, the thing that drives that, at least for myself, and I think for many people, is, um, you know, curiosity is just a thirst to learn, a thirst to know, a thirst to, um, you know, put things out in the world so that you can talk to people about them more. Um, but also, I think, Uh, a certain humbleness, the people that I always really love that I meet. And particularly when I meet people who, um, you know, I really admire who have achieved things that, uh, you know, that I really respect deeply. It's always kind of amazing to meet those people, um, you know, who maybe do or do not know what you have achieved. Um, and to have them be, you know, sort of equally curious, you know, to have them kind of treat everyone, um, on the same level and as if everyone is sort of, um, worthy of their curiosity. And I think that's, it's a really beautiful skill to cultivate. Hmm.
2: Well, this has been amazing, uh, and really eye-opening. Where can people learn more about you and your work?
1: Um, they can find the book or, um, a bunch of writing about productivity and creativity at my website, which is at jkglei.com.
2: Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared.
4: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well,